So yeah, I mean, as we were just saying downstairs, last time I probably saw you was in Portugal, where you had your booth, your newly developed company space. Mm -hmm. um, but I was thinking, let's take it before that, when I first met you, which was obviously when we were 17, 18 in Christ College. In Christ College. And then, Indeed. I mean, what, you were studying economics back then, wasn't it? Economics, uh, business studies, psychology. And what was your aim at that point in your life? How I mean, you, how old were you back then? Like 20, 20? I know you were a few years older than me. Uh, no, I'm only one year old. Oh, one year older? Ah! Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone always had the impression I was older because I, I had a bald haircut. Well, I had a bald haircut, right? Yeah, I yeah. shaved my head and I did it on purpose because I wanted to look older mm -hmm. um, because I thought it would be uh, make it more likely that I could get a job, mm -hmm. right? People don't take you seriously when you're 15, 16. They think you. You're naive, you don't know much, so I, I tried to kind of fail that. Me and me, they, they cut my hair in the uh, six room common room. Not me, though, the other one, he's doing fitness and stuff. Me doing fitness, so he's getting married. So, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Time, time flies. What about you? Are you getting married soon? <laughs> uh, not anytime soon. <laughs> not anytime soon. I'm married to space for now. How, how long has the idea of space been in your head? Were you always planning to just go to university and just pursue like an economics and finance kind of field? Or? Well, well, yeah, at the time, I mean, when I was in sixth form, I was actually working on a, another business. Um, that inevitably failed. I had a lack of experience. What I was that business? Um, so the idea was, it was a company called DevF. The idea was that you could aggregate information from various different source points and then use that to create uh, reports or even sort of funnel information into your dissertation. The, the, the whole hassle of writing essays and uh, eventually my dissertation and I wanted to kind of sort of preemptively create something that could help me support that. And I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, you know, being young, not doing this for the first time, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls you fall into. Um, hiring friends is my first one. <laughs> I think the expectations can be misaligned on either side. But I think knowing that I need a, a, a sort of a safety net, decided to obviously go to university and study economics and management studies. And I wanted to balance the theoretical side of economics with the managerial side mm -hmm. of management studies. You know, I think having studied organizations at that point and sort of thinking about career prospects and where I might go if this business didn't work out, uh, I think it was pretty clear that people who succeed um, on technical skills alone will sort of hit a glass ceiling. You know, you go into an organization, you prove yourself, you're, you're required to report to your managers, and then you get to a certain point. And at that point, usually your, your ability to progress is driven by your relationships with other people mm -hmm. and your capacity to lead, as opposed to how technically savvy you are at your own job. Equally, if you, you know, people like you, but they don't feel like you can sort of, you know, pull your weight at a more junior level, you never get to get to that place mm -hmm. in the first place at all. So. You know, coupling economics and management studies, I thought might 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 give me the best chance of progressing uh, quite quickly in a in a bank or some other financial institute. Was it always a kind of dream to kind of work for a bank or anything no, like that? Or no, no, no. Was there like an expectation from your parents <laughs> as well, maybe to even get into finance? Or no, no. I mean, I mean, I've always been like, uh, I've always had a, I've always been creative. I've always had like an eclectic personality. So, what I've wanted to be has changed several okay. times. <laughs> I mean, I look. I found my um, my uh, my primary school um, notes the other day, yeah. and I, was, <laughs> I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be a musician. Well, I want. I mean, you know what you want to be, and I think the uh, the passions you have are, are not single folds, right? You have. You will be interested in several things mm -hmm. during the course of your life, but I think uh, at some point you have to choose to focus. Mm -hmm. um, 
I did want to be an architect, I did take that seriously, and, but I did do well in maths, and I did well in sciences as well, I would support that. So I decided to orient my focus towards finance. Wall Street Money Never Sleeps with Michael Douglas. Oh, uh, the 1980 exactly. yeah, on the plane back. And that, that was, that kind of got me, you know, a little pumped up. That's a solid film. Really <laughs> that's, that's a weird It got me a little pumped up, so uh, decided to go into finance and uh, had a pretty successful short stint before I decided to start Space, which was my second business. And I saw you work for Barclays, I think, Wealth Manager, yeah. or I mean, Rothschild. Yeah, so like we did, um, did uh, I was an intern at, uh, Deutsche Bank to start with, then went into Wealth at Barclays, uh, then left with the same team to Rothschild um, to work for private equity uh, uh, there. And it was there that two of my clients funded the business. We raised about, about, about a half a million dollars uh, oh, nice. in, the, in the first year. I remember being at the train station, and I'm pretty sure I contributed £100. I think I was at Henderson, <laughs> I was at Golders Green Station, I was trying to yeah. log in to see this. And I remember standing at the station, I was like, let me contribute to this. Yeah. And yeah, that's why no, I was... It's, I was it's, it's so cool, because I feel like, you know, I think part of the reason I wanted to do it, both through crowdfunding, was, I mean, even though we had a core set of investors who I already had both personal relationships with, by virtue of them being my clients, um, CDS sort of helped overcome like the paperwork barrier mm -hmm. you know they deal with all the administration all the uh, periodic reports we have to deliver to our investors come go through cedars so it was a it was just an easy avenue to, to get things out but a kind of like ancillary benefit was that you know everyone who invested these other people who put in you know the tens mm -hmm. and the 50 pounds became evangelists for the business even if only they contributed up to you know, say 10 15 percent of the total raised amount they collectively are probably making more noise than some yeah, of us. Yeah, the, 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 the wider, larger investors who, you know, led them around. So, I mean, I had the idea for space at university. I mean, I was a student ambassador, right? So my job at school was to take students from property to property. Every day I had to go and look at all the international students. Across the course of my journey, I just realized how consistent the issues that students were facing. And you would get students come from Nigeria, from from America, from India, China, the Middle East, wherever it might be, on other parts of Europe to the UK, and have to lodge really expensive temporary accommodation. You could be in like a hostel or, you know, a hotel for three months. It's just, it was crazy, the amount these guys were spending. And because they didn't have like a platform in their own home country, it was difficult for them to search for different, properties, options. Yeah. different options. I mean, you know, if for anyone who's done a year abroad or for who's worked abroad, you know that it's very, you know, you often have to go to the country in which you're working or studying before you can find a property. And that, in a world of technology, that just shouldn't be mm. the case. You know, I think at the time, you know, I don't think I was ready to, to, to start another business. My first business had failed, and I swore I'd never start another business again. Mm. I was gonna be a banker through and through, did very well um, within three years of, you know, being in finance, was at Rothschild, was an associate, senior associate there, and then decided to just, you know, take a punt and leave, raising money from someone. So after that first business, what got you to think, like, you know what, I just don't want to try this again? Was it the failure that hurt you or disappointed you that much? Or you're like, you know what, I just, yeah. or you just feel like, I'm not, maybe I'm not a businessman, maybe I'm just better. I, I always knew I was entrepreneurial, but I think the issue is that I had attached so much of my identity to it. Mm -hmm. So when the business failed, I did, I kind of lost sense of myself mm -hmm. for a second. You know, it was like, but if I don't have the business and I'm this ambitious person who's got all these aspirations, but yet can't make this work, then what do I have left? And that was tough for me. I think I, after that, I spent time 
investing in me outside of my business, such that God forbid if my business ever did fail, I could continue to live and have my own identity. Because you've had it yourself. Because I'm, I'm a developed human being myself, irrespective of what I achieve. Uh, and carrying that into space, I think has made me a more successful entrepreneur because people, what I come to realize is that people, yes, as much as business is important, the viability of your business from an investability perspective, from profitability perspective is important. People want to invest in people that they like, who are developed, that they, they can sit down and have a drink with or whatever else it might be. Um, and I didn't really understand the value of that until I think I got a bit older. So Space is a, well, we're now a software company. We're a real estate-oriented software business. Mm -hmm. uh, what were you before? A marketplace. Okay. And I'll explain how we went from sort of A to B. So um, when we first launched Space, we, you know, leveraging kind of the, my experience and the problems that I, that I noticed during my time at uni, we decided to start this uh, sort of Airbnb-style property rental marketplace that connects students with the whole plethora of different landlords that exist on the real estate spectrum. Mm -hmm. So on one side of that spectrum, you'll have uh, you know, everyday students. And if you're talking about the, the, the property landscape and that spectrum, on one side of that spectrum, you'll have private landlords. These will be your everyday sort of mom, pops, our landlords um, who may or may not use an Airbnb for short-term lets, but don't necessarily have an equivalent for like a, a proper long-term rental which requires sort of contract signing and recurring payments and then on the other side of the spectrum you have the institutional landlords these are the likes of sort of colliers and pines the big institutional corporate developers who already have like those processes in place but still for the most part need verified leads from one central credible place right now these guys are spending a fortune on like spare room and you know, tons of different platforms, none of them which none of which give them verified leads, uh, and most of which require a an upfront capital cost. So you know, if you're spending you know, a few thousand pounds on one platform that's only filling up five percent of your rooms, and you're you're listed on twenty different platforms, it's the money starts to back up, right? And so the thesis was that if we could, if we could become that one central marketplace by having focusing on the niche of students that these guys wouldn't have to go anywhere else. Uh, and we launched the product, you know, we raised, you know, over half a million dollars in 2017. Uh, that was successful. Um, I created a real world-class team. And uh, in, in November 2017, we launched the platform. And although we felt we built the best product in the market at the time, I think uh, what struggled were the sort of unit economics of our underlying business. Mm -hmm. Most marketplaces globally are incredibly unprofitable. I mean, Uber, by the way, still is unprofitable. Mm. Airbnb started making a profit a few years ago, and that's having had billion, you know, a lot of money as investment. And they're still even raising more money. And they're still so raising more money, right? So, you know, they are, they're doing that with the luxury of having a business model which accommodates users for a lifetime. You know, once you join Airbnb, there's nothing restricting you by virtue of being a student or whatever it might be from using the platform indefinitely. So you can imagine therefore how difficult it would be for a marketplace like Space to achieve profitability when you reduce that lifetime value to the two or three years that they're living off campus. It's just, it was impossible, right? And it's made even more impossible by the fact that uh, students are notoriously non-sticky customers. They have no loyalty to anybody. They don't give 
They shared about anybody. I mean, and they're very expensive to apply. What made what made you realize this? Obviously, at the start. Well, just looking at how much we were spending in marketing, okay. right? So we tested it over the first six months. How much are we spending in marketing? How many users are we getting in? What's the sort of CAC to LTV? We did all those metrics, and a year later, you know, the company was 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 in some trouble, quite frankly. Uh, I needed something to validate these assumptions. <laughs> So we had, we, we had the good fortune of being able to join the Collier's Techstars program at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Collier's, you know, uh, it was the inaugural PropTech program. Collier's is, uh, uh, Techstars rather, is uh, an accelerator program for those who don't know. They run incubators, uh, I think they're second or third largest globally. Y Combinator is another large one, and Airbnb participated on the Y Combinator program in 2008. So for Techstars to launch an equivalent program that focused solely on PropTech was really interesting. The program was sponsored by colleagues that I had mentioned, and they, at the time, that same year, uh, had just bought a company called Harrison Street, which is, it was a $2 billion acquisition, and they are the second largest provider of student accommodation globally. So what we were able to do by joining the program uh, was able to use leverage Harrison Street's data to validate some of our assumptions about how expensive it was to put students into mm-hmm. property. And then we decided to execute a pivot, which was very painful, I think it was, you know, I, I had moved to Canada for four or five months to work on growing our existing product and then sort of looking at, you know, how this whole thing was going to work and then we had to pivot. So the, the work that I'd done for, that we'd done for the last 18 months, not that we had to tear it down because we could retain the product, the product looked fine, but we had to really think about other marketing channels that we could use and where we ended up was we began licensing the software to organizations who had cheaper and better recurring access to end user groups, mm. students and adults. The most obvious ones would be universities themselves, mm. right? If we could equip the universities with the tools that they needed to essentially compete with the spare rooms of the world, then there in fact, the students definitely wouldn't have to go mm. anywhere else. And we know that because if you look at the first year market, the universities essentially have a monopoly. Mm. When you go to university, it's seen as a rite of passage to go into your first year halls of residence um, without complaint. Mm. And then, only when the student, the university doesn't have a service to offer do you then venture off into the wilderness and try yeah. to find something of your own. So the question, that I think our thesis was, is if we could give the university the same tools to own the off-campus market, and they, they do the on-campus market, the, the students would just flow from one, one, one model of universities to the other. February 2019, this is sort of March 2019, three months after getting back from uh, from Toronto, uh, we had the good fortune of acquiring the University of London and all of its constituent schools. Oh, nice. uh, the University of London is a federation, it's not just a university. It consists of you know, some of the more notable schools, London Business School, UCL, King's College, LSE, uh, the University of the Arts and all of it, their constituent schools. Um, uh, and collectively, I think it's 32 schools in total, and those schools represent, or make up rather, uh, about 25% of the total number of higher education institutions in the country. Those 25% of institutions represent about 12.5% of the student population in the country. So it was a huge validating uh, um, success for our pivot and for the business. And I mean, you know, overnight, what seemed we managed to acquire 25% of the market, or 12.5% if you think about it in student, student population terms. Um, we started working with them, uh, you know, at that time, first of all, consultative phase, which was about six months for anyone who's dealing with sort of bigger 
corporate clients, you know that the procurement process takes six to 12 months, it's quite long. And then we uh, went into implementation, we've been building the product for them since September last year. They helped us refine our product. And I think one of the main things I realized was that all entrepreneurs, one of the biggest failings I had, I think as an entrepreneur, but also the biggest lesson, was that you know all entrepreneurs who think they have great ideas have only validated that assumption within their own mind. And really, the only people who can tell you whether a product is necessary or going to be successful or not are the, are the consumer in the market. So we thought that we could sell to the students. And when the students said, we don't need you because actually we have a spare room, but we would only use this if it was sort of distributed by university, mm. you know, we, we ought to listen. And when the university said, we need this because our housing office is paying you know, millions of pounds reconciling student experience, bad student experiences, which they're having on these third-party platforms over which they have no control, we, we, we had to listen. Even once we got into the contract, it was so interesting to see how the client steered the way our, our product moved in ways that we didn't realize it had to. Mm. And that's the real mode, that's the real barrier to entry is, is what came after, not signing the deal and that kind of stuff, the real mode is what those universities have helped us create since we signed them on. Uh, because there are legalities to this whole thing that a lot of those new startup companies will have no fucking idea about, quite frankly. And that's where the real kind of uh, uh, com competitive advantage is for, for us. Um, you know, these corporate clients will sign you for five to 10 years. Their sales, their churn cycles, in most cases, 20 years. So being in the game and being in our position is, is, is hugely advantageous. And uh, we're launching actually the, the, the platform to their students uh, next, uh, next week. Oh, nice. Next week. So, so in like a few days, after 18 months. Of and now we fast forward to 2020 and how's the last six months been? Obviously with COVID, universities kind of essentially being shut, a lot of universities saying they would kind of mm -hmm. let students learn from home, work from well, home. Well, I think there were, there were a couple of things. I mean, you know, when people say COVID, everyone gets scared, but let's be honest, COVID has been um, beneficial for some companies. Not that it necessarily has been hugely advantageous for space, but it hasn't necessarily had the negative impact some would expect. Uh, I think there are three trenches that you can pull in. Either it's business as usual, all the universities are, all universities are taking their students back into school, and then nothing's changed. You have everyone studying online, and then you have the halfway house. And for most universities, the first and the second option aren't really viable. The first is really not viable because if the number of contractions of coronavirus goes up, shooting up at universities, because the universities haven't taken any you know, protocols in place, then they're to blame. And that's huge, hugely, uh, there's a huge kind of reputational risk to the schools. So they, they choose not to do it, right? The second option is not viable because although it's the safest option, Online courses usually warrant about 25% of the price of in-person study. So the university is essentially saying, we're happy to give up, by going down the route, they're saying that they're happy to give up 70, 75%, 80% of their, their, their revenue, most of which is derived from courses, um, and, and real estate, of course, housing uh, thereafter. And for this next academic year, or maybe even back for, for the academic year after that, if we don't find a vaccine soon enough. So what most schools are doing is running the halfway house. 
right? And I think the problem is exacerbated by the fact that some school, some um, uh, courses like medicine, where you have to do like in-person labs and stuff like that, physically can't be done online. It can't be done online. So most universities are going down the halfway house route, which I thought will have you guys do half of your your studying in person, half of it online. Mm. And the reason why that still requires the housing for demand is because most people will have to be on campus to do the in-person stuff. And even for the courses, the part of the course which is done online, it's done in real time, meaning that you have to be online to study at the time at which the lecturer in this country is starting. Meaning if you are in China and you are, I don't know, however however many hours ahead or behind, you may have to be up at 3 a.m. in the morning to be able to to participate on a real-time basis. So a lot of those kids are just like, well, screw that. I'd rather just be here in person to study. And therefore, the, the demand for real estate still exists. Okay, that's um, good. That's which, which is which is good for companies like us, which are creating software to manage that real estate. What have you learned most about yourself three years into a well-developed business? I think I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned, like, you know, my intolerances, my temperament. I've learned what my boundaries are. That's probably the most important thing I would say. You know, when I first started, well, when I created my first business, and even I think in the early days of space. I had no boundaries whatsoever, none. And not, and not only that, I expected my team to not have any boundaries. You know, if I'm up at three in the morning, well, why the hell are you up yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, come on guys. <laughs> and for a while they actually bought it, you know, they, they, people were up till three, four in the morning with me until, you know, you get some, some bit of resistance and people are like, well, you know, I, I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I think part of the, you know, my learning is uh, is understanding my own my own thresholds, my own tolerances, my own boundaries, my own, and then creating an environment and a work life balance. I wouldn't say balance, a work life synergy that supports what I know my body is physically capable of. What's your kind of day to day routine? I mean, do you have like a do you kind of go with the flow and have like a bit of a structure to the day, like depending on what time you wake up, or do you have like a whole regiment that you stuck to? So I, I used to, honestly, I used to have no no routine whatsoever. It's awful. I mean, I would go to bed at four, be up at, you know, nine, have calls and take a nap in between. It was just all over the place. Today, I get a minimum of eight hours sleep a day, mandatory. I refuse, I don't, you know, but it's the only- What got you to finally decide that you want that eight hours sleep? I got back from textiles and I was exhausted. <laughs> and I was trying to, uh, I mean, I was getting five hours sleep a day. You get into the office, you're working at eight. You have to be there at eight, program, you know, the every day starts at eight. You leave at eight, then you go out, you know, you're, you're trying to socialize. I was trying to connect with some of the guys from colleagues at the time. And, you know, in the real estate business, that you know, it's, it's they like to drink. <laughs> It's just, a, you know, it's a bit like kind of banking in the olden days. I think real estate probably hasn't followed suit as quickly in terms of uh, reducing that. But, it, you know, it's very, you know, hyper-masculine. Guys like to drink, the whiskeys are out. Even though my focus was on work, it was, I would have to work till eight, nine, 10, then go and see some of these guys, try and set up calls. And it was also running the business in the UK, which was still at that time a marketplace. Cause you know, yes, the pivot happened in, a couple months after, but for those three months we were on the program, the, 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 the marketplace was still running. So imagine you're running a UK business, which is sort of like five hours ahead, and then 
you know, so I'd have to be up early just to take inquiries in the UK as well, so I couldn't get much sleep. I just can't do that anymore. Eight hours sleep a day, I work out every other day. I do mixed martial arts, I, I love to fight. Um, I remember in CCF, remember that little gym we had, I think you were wrestling with someone. I think it was Danis, oh. we put some mats down. Oh, yeah, me Danis. Danis is a, he's a tough motherfucker. He's <laughs> and being an old boy school. Right? Oh, I test also on his heart. I test also Keep fit, working out. Um, I take vitamins every morning. Uh, you know, even just basic things like skincare. You know, I, I get up. Because people forget how important it is. I mean, you know, you, when you don't sleep, you're not drinking enough water. I looked a mess. Even skincare, I refuse. I, I wash my face twice a day. I use specialist creams. I eat right. I drink a hell of a lot of water. I, you know, I don't drink alcohol that much. I don't smoke. Um, you know, and that's what I need to sustain. You know, what what I what I do. Especially when I was at uni, I, I felt like I was invincible. Mm. And you know, I could just go out and you know, you have your day of going out, and then we'll go straight from the club to your lectures. And you think that you can continue that for the rest of your life, and it just doesn't work that way. But I, I, you seem like a family man. I, I, I mean, I've known you for a few years, but I mean, we haven't spent a tremendous amount of time together. But I can just tell from the conversation, the energy. You seem like a family man. I don't know. I love my family. Again, I'm going to reiterate the point that I made before, which is I don't. You know, if you are, if you're working a full-time job, it's easier to have work-life balance. As an entrepreneur, I don't necessarily believe in that. I believe in work-life synergy. Because, you know, I don't necessarily have to have equal amounts of work and fun and pleasure. Um, but what I do need to have is I need to allow one of those things to feed into the other in a way that's um, contradict or conflict each other. Okay. So like, because you will have times as an entrepreneur, quite frankly, where you are working, you need to work, you know, you're on a project, you're, you're getting less sleep. But then you need to be able to sort of have a, a lifestyle that supports you in doing that. So it's not 50-50, but the 20% you are spending having fun needs to work into feeding into, fueling the, the work life. Yeah. And then vice versa. There'll be times where you quite literally think the business is working for itself and you don't have things as much to do. So you say, okay, well, how do I manage my relationship with work in a way that allows me to spend more time with family or whatever? And it will, it will fluctuate like that. It's more volatile. Mm -hmm. And that, if you, obviously, if you take the average of it all, it probably works out as 50-50, but at any one You didn't approach point, it like that. You didn't approach exactly, it. Exactly. But at any one given point in time, there's one more than the other. And then you, you figure out, you know, if I take the average hours I spend on either over the course of the year, it might be 50-50, right? But you know, I think with a, with a full-time job, you probably have 50-50 every day. Mm. Interesting, we're not work-life balance, work-life synergy. Friends, this is another topic I've always yeah, thought right. about. <laughs> and okay. the kind of people you surround yourself with, mm. if you rewind it back to when your first business, I mean, what have you learned most about the people you've been around? Do you still, have you, not like got rid of friends, but have you just like been able to move on from people but just haven't been on the same wavelength as you and how have you dealt with that and managed that? It's, it's quite interesting because when I first, I think even forget before like space, I mean, even just going into finance, I did have that sort of mentality, you know, well, you know, this guy is not within finance as well. Oh, you know, you cut him off? Yeah, oh, you know, he's not, he's not moving. Then, but you know, uh, and group your friends away from associates. Um, because those people who commercially aren't as wealthy, okay, 
don't necessarily have all the glamorous jobs are the ones I, in many cases, are, are most happiest mm. with. I have friends who, who make half the pay as some of my colleagues, my ex-colleagues. Um, I would rather spend my weekend mm. with those guys than my with some of my colleagues any day. I think what I've learned, part of what my journey as an entrepreneur has ta taught me is that as much as I want to be successful and I want these things, that my hu I, I will never give up those things at the cost of my humanity, ever. I don't necessarily think that one compromises the other. I think, again, they synergize, they, they synergistically feed into each other. If I'm around, if I'm around people who, who only think about success, wealth, money, all times of the day, your life will be miserable. I just want, sometimes I just want to be with my boys who don't give a shit, who just want to have fun, who are cool. And I know that, I, and I appreciate them for who they are and what they can offer me, and vice versa. And then most of them I need to go to work, I know who to gravitate towards it, but I don't think it's uh, I'm right. I'm you out, but you just like, nah. Now, if that person, of course, if that person is toxic and not helping, your life, anyway. not helping your life, even you know, even in a, in that kind of non-professional, you know, purely social way, like you know, even within your social life, they're toxic. Then fine, yeah, gotta do it, yeah. gotta do it, right? But there are some people who just aren't driven and by and don't have the same motivations that that I might have, and that's okay. I still love and appreciate these people for who they are, and I enjoy their time. Do you have someone or? A role model or a massive influence you had your whole life, or uh, when you were younger, that got you maybe to think more techy. Because obviously you were yeah, in the finance kind of world, and then you transitioned into tech. Have you heard? I, I don't think I don't think I can't put you know one name to it. I think I've met various I've met various people across the course of my journey. Yeah, you picked friends up. Who I've picked different things from people who I was in the program with, um, clients even you know friends who I've reached back out to or reached out to me and I've reconnected with, and whom I've come to appreciate more than I ever have um, you know family the time that I've, I've given myself to spend with family and things like that I'm just a, a better a better and happier person than, than I ever was in finance what kind of advice would you give to your younger self or even your young you've got a younger brother as well haven't you my, my younger brothers you know again they don't necessarily have the same motivations as I am very smart I'd say academically my brother's probably my younger brother's probably smartest in the house mm -hmm. But he's more of an academic than he is an entrepreneur. Just naturally. Naturally. Yeah. He's naturally smart, like he's gifted, yeah. no doubt. Because I think for me, I did well academically, but I had to really graft for it. Mm -hmm. I'm just not, I'm smart, but I think my intelligence is, is not necessarily academic. Um, I read a lot of books. I'm, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a bit more eclectic than, than his is. So would I expect Daniel to become an entrepreneur. No, what I, I think what I could probably advise him on is how he balances his aspirations in his own line of work with what's some of what's really important, which again is family and all that other good stuff, right? I think some of those lessons are transferable to, to what he's doing. Some, some maybe not, um, you know, everyone's journey is personal. Maybe just to wrap it up a little bit, if you had to you met someone that's planning on becoming an entrepreneur or start their own idea, what kind of, if you had to give like three little ideas or maybe even one little bit of advice you would give them? The first thing I would ask is question why you do what you do and make sure that it's authentic to yourself. Uh, don't try to be a version of yourself that you're not uh, because you will fail. And even if you succeed as a person, you'll be unhappy, naturally. 
the only way that life, I think you can win in life is if you are one, successful, but if you are happy with what you become out of that success. And I think people, you know, look at the monetary shiny stuff and think that that's all there is, but it, it, it just, it, there's much more than that. So you can consider The second thing is, uh, I think, you know, it is a, you have to go play the long game. It is a journey and resilience with that in mind is perhaps the most important skill that you can pick up. You know, a lot of people give up on the way. Of the 10 competitors that we put on our Cedars campaign, when we were raising our first, you know, half a million dollar round in 2017, 90% of them are under the ground. They're, they're in the fucking soil. Dead. You know, most of those founders would have gone back into jobs. You have to recognize the, the, the actual, mm, the actual gravity of the journey that you are about to embark on and be willing to make the sacrifices that are required to, to make it work because it's, Sorry. you know, I think business is, is hard work. Well, that's what I realized as well through tough times. Everything, I'll say 99% of life is mental. It's what you tell yourself, focus on the, on the goal at hand. Yeah. And there will be up and downs. You're battling yourself at the end of the day. You'll have people who disagree with you. Even your family might not even yeah, believe yeah. in you as much as you believe in yourself. But I that's agree. To stay focused. Be, be, be positive. Look at look at the future. Build a long game and and do what they, feels authentically right to you. Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. At the end of it, like I say, anything that really fucking matters. I'll tell you that. So are you happy right now in life? If you had to, the thing with happiness, it's a very it's a wishy-washy word. Yeah, exactly. But if you have the rank of satisfaction yeah. of life at the moment where you are, it's would you high. say, yeah, it's good. It's high. And I think, I think the way I put it is, because I remember saying to a friend, you know, happiness is important. His response to me was, well, you're never always happy. And I said, well, look, you can look at life two ways, right? You either are miserable and then you have like the, the kind of peaks of happiness and you go back to the trough of like misery. <laughs> <laughs> or you're a happy person most of the time. And then you have the kind of troughs of, you know, disappointment, upset, but you always bounce back. Mm -hmm. And I prefer to look at life from the latter lens mm -hmm. than the former, right? And that's how I feel. I feel, I feel great. You know, do I get pissed off when, you know, people deliver on stuff like, yeah, I get angry. Bullshit, it's natural. You know, natural, I get pissed off. Things happen, I shout, I scream, <laughs> but then I, 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 I deal with it and I, I'm back to my, my normal self. What you said in two weeks or a few weeks time spaces? Well, in a, in a few days, I think you can you can check us out on our website. Uh, it's www.liveinspace.com. Um, you know, we the pivots you know, finally complete. We've launched uh, the the University of London's product, and uh, we're demoing with several others, and not just here, but in across North America now. Um, having brought uh, some of the directors from the University of London onto our, our board nice. directors, so they're helping us drive those themselves. It's uh, pretty good. Check us out. Perfect, perfect. Thank you very much, Leon. Already. Oh my God. <laughs>